Howdy, friends. You're listening to Teaching from Our College Ministry here at FBC Bryan. We hope you enjoy this message from our college pastor, John Davison, as we continue to journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have any questions, reach out via social media, or you can visit our website at fbcbryan.org slash college. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Give my hand. Thanks, guys. Excited to continue this journey through November, um, just talking about missions, um, highlighting some of those things. And as you begin to process this and, and commit to some of that, we need to know the greatest things that you can do is God calls you into in, like to serve or to be a sender or any of those things is just to share that story. There's just no telling what conversation that you have with some random stranger who, who has a passion for the country that you're going to and also... Uh, has a lot of money, and is going to write you a check and send you. Um, and that happens often when you just share that story. But also, we want to be praying for you and be involved in that sending. So keep that up. Now, I also know that time change happened. And so for a lot of you, you feel that it's like almost 10 o'clock. And mom has already drawn your bath water, and it is time to like go home and sleep. That's kind of what you're feeling. And so we're going we're gonna to try to, I don't rush through much of scripture at all. But I think what Ecclesiastes 9 does for us today is real important. And it even applies to our lives in how we live them on mission. And so jump over to Ecclesiastes chapter nine. I wanna, um, I'm gonna let you in on a little bit of a secret in my life. Not even really a secret, but just part of a story in my life that uh, may sound a little bit strange to you, and I'm not gonna set it all the way up, but here we go. Uh, my dad, man, we're going deep real fast, I'm sorry. Um, my dad was killed in a drug deal that went bad in 1989. I lived with him until I was four years old. I got attacked by a dog, and my mom came and picked me up. We were in, in Springfield, Missouri, and we moved to Texas. From the time I was four until he was killed, I saw him once. And so I really didn't have much of a relationship with him. Some of you know that story. Um, I didn't find out that he had passed away until 1993, and so four years after that. I was pulled out of an, an algebra class with our school counselor, my grandma, my mom, and, and this is what they said in the hallway. Hey, we just found out that your dad has been killed. And, and, and a lot of people, when they hear that, you go, oh, and I went, okay. And, and that was my response. And I don't know if that was just like the Lord in a weird way protecting me, or if I was just callous to that, or because I didn't know him. So I really didn't have a relationship. The, the word dad in my life was, was called to a bunch of different guys that my mom was bringing in and out of our house that she was sleeping with or having weird relationships with. And so it had lost its meaning to me. And it didn't mean much. And my mom softened that even, and he, she said, in the hallway, after, you know, a minute after saying this, said, the good part is, though, is that the U.S. government's going to back pay Social Security and we're going to get a really big check. I was like, okay, so my dad's death equaled money. My mom died of cancer and cirrhosis of the liver in uh, 2002. And... When she passed away, the Lord was unbelievably gracious to allow that relationship to continue um, in, a, in a unique way. She had abandoned me when I was 16 years old, and I hadn't seen her from that time until I saw her in the hospital. And the Lord had shifted my heart to really care for her and to have a passion for her. But, but in the midst of that conversation, and even when she passed away, it didn't just wreck my world. And honestly, it, it was one of those things that I'd I didn't like her for a long time, which was sin on my behalf. Um, and I got to see a piece with a woman that I sort of knew and that I kind of got to call, that I was calling mom, but I had a different woman, an older woman in my life that had taken on that role and adopted me when I was in high school. And so the word mom was kind of lost. She was just an, a, another person. 
that the Lord had rescued, but, but I don't even know, and you're like, man, John, you're a horrible person. I don't even know if I cried when it happened. I, I cried when Jesus saved her, but I don't think I cried when she died. And, and so death in my life, losing both of my parents, wasn't really that heavy. You know what was? I lost a friend who was a year younger than me. His name was Chris. So a really good friend of mine was lost as can be his sophomore year. And my junior year, I started sharing Christ with Chris. And, and it took a year before Chris responded to the gospel and gave his life to Jesus. And, and, and was radically his life was radically rearranged for Christ. My freshman year of college was his senior year of high school. They had gone coyote hunting, and on his way back, his friend accidentally shot him in the vehicle. Gun went off and went up through both of his lungs and through his heart while he was driving. I, I cried at Chris's funeral. I like, cried when I found out about it. I was wrecked because of that. Because he was a friend. He was somebody that I had a relationship with. And across that spectrum of, of those type of relationships and even stuff that our family has walked through here recently, this, this is what I've learned. Um, no matter the relationship, no matter what's going on in your life, death is a certainty. It just is. And there, there are moments that I can speak about it in lighthearted ways, and there are moments that it's unbelievably heavy. There are moments when I think that I've got it, like figured out. And a lot of you were at Papa Earl's funeral, and I sat over there at that pew and through worship and stuff. I was like, I'm good. And as soon as I stepped out to, to go up on stage and share about his life, man, I was not good <laughs> at all. I was wrecked in that moment. Why? Because of relationship, because he played the role of father for me because of how close we were together. But even in that, I got to stand up there and, and realize this. Like, death, it's batting 100%. You're not going to escape it. All right? Unless you're an Enoch who walked faithfully with the Lord and the Lord's like, okay, come on. You're an Elijah who was who just like chariot of fire, kind of a really sweet exis, ex, exit. Um, or you're Jesus. And I haven't met any of you in here. We don't have an Enoch, do we? One of you are going to name your kids that. Uh, now that would be cool. It, it, it's batting 100. Death, this predator that is death, is going to track you down. You can't outrun death no matter how much kale you eat, no matter how much you work out, no matter what medicine you take. It, it, you're not going to outrun it. All right? And, and, and I, I love the the randomness of this where like super athlete who eats whatever right is and works out and does all of those things passes away at 27 because of a heart attack or the goofy woman on cnn a couple years ago who turned 103 and she said the secret to her life was drinking three dr peppers a day and you're like amen to that like i think dr pepper like the formula is just like like antifreeze and <laughs> some sort of sugar in there and she's like it's sustaining you do, it's random like that's not the formula hear me you don't drink three dr peppers a day and live to be 103 that's just freak genetics is what she has and somebody like please lord let me have those but but death is going to win and this is what solomon does here in chapter nine the title of mine is enjoy life despite 
death. And like, whoa. And this is Solomon's like mountaintop peak of his meaningless thing. He's like, if, if this life is all that there is, if this is it, and then you die and you cease to exist, then it is 100% meaningless because we all end up in the same place. And, and this is what he does. We're just going to start in verse 1. Indeed, I took all this to heart, and I explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. He's going, hey, all of our works are in God's hands. He's saying God is sovereign over our life. And if you read you know, before, if you're just joining us, Ecclesiastes 3, he's even sovereign over our time. And so everything, like he's, he's sovereign over it, our time, our works, everything is in his hands. And people don't know whether to expect love or to expect hate. Everything lies ahead of them. You cannot use your circumstances to determine, this is what he's saying, you can't use your circumstances to determine whether God loves you or hates you, whether he accepts you or rejects you. Your circumstances don't pour into that. And there's a lot of churches that are going to say that they do. A lot of churches are going to say that if you follow God's commands and you're a good little Christian girl or boy, then you're going to be blessed. Life is going to go really, really well. You're going to get the house and the car and the wife and the dog and the fence and all of those things. If you would just seek the Lord and if you pray the right prayer, he's going to expand your territory. I think John the Baptist was godly. And he didn't get his territory expanded, and he didn't have riches. The bro was homeless, and he ate crickets for dinner, and he got his head chopped off. And you would go, oh, that doesn't line up. That's right, because we can't use our circumstances to determine whether or not God favors you. This is, this is not how this works. This is how he starts out pretty heavy right off the bat. We don't know whether to expect love or to hate. Everything lies ahead of us. Verse 2, everything is the same for everyone this where he's fixing to get sad. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked. And he's done this before, this, these little like mirristic compare and contrast things. He does this six times in here to point us to one place. Everything is the same for everyone. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. Two sides of this coin. For the good and for the bad, they have the same fate. For the clean and for the unclean. For the one who sacrifices and for the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good so also it is for the sinner. And as it is for the one who takes an oath, so also it is for the one who fears an oath. And he's going, what, what is it? What is the same thing for all of them? It's, it's death. And this good little Israelite boy here, Solomon, takes a shot at all of the Israelite customs that God, we would assume God is satisfied with them doing. And this good little Israelite, like, it doesn't matter if I take an oath, even though God calls me to be like that. It doesn't matter if I'm clean, even though God is calling me to that. It doesn't matter if I sacrifice the right way, even though God has called me to that. It doesn't matter if I'm good versus being a sinner. What happens? I die. And whether I'm good or I'm a sinner, then we just die. Verse 3, this is an evil. In all that is done under the sun, I love that he brings this up. This is an evil. There is one fate for everyone. Why does he call this an evil, that we die? Because he knows the story. He knows that Genesis 3 is where the death came about. But Genesis 1 and 2 was all about life. You will live forever in this paradise that I created for you if you would follow my commands. Just don't eat from that tree. All the rest of this years, just don't do that. We sinned. And so here's the evil that's a part of that. He knows that it was supposed to be life eternal in this garden. But instead, we die. 
There's this one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of all these people that are going to die are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Then he says this, but there is hope. For whoever is joined with all of the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. This proves the point we talked about this morning. Dogs are better than cats. Even like really big cats. Because <laughs> some of you are like, yeah, like I understand the little common household feline. Like that one's not that cool. But have you ever seen a lion? I have, in fact. And not at the zoo. Which, by the way, lions at zoos, still pretty radical. You know, you can be walking around the other side of the zoo and the lion roars and you're like, what was that? Because that, like, you feel that a long way away. One of the first mission trips my wife and I uh, went on, we were doing a, a 21 village kind of case study in Kenya. And we ended up at Sweetwater Tinted Camp, which is on the equator in Kenya. And we are literally on these like wooden structures with a deck and a canvas tent that's set on top of them in the middle of the savanna, basically. And our, one of our tour guides, he says, hey, if you hear this beeping noise, just boop, boop, stay in your tent. <laughs> okay, like somebody outside, like a metal detector, like what, what, are we, what is that? He said, the lions have trackers on them. And when they, come into the, when they come into the camp, it will beep, and they will come into the camp. Okay. I'm in a canvas tent. I've seen a lion before. Like I, I don't think that's really a match for this bro. But, hey, it's, it's an adventure. This will be cool. We get up in the morning. No lie. Zebra, like four yards from these steps that go down. I'm like, hey, zebra. Giraffe out in the distance. And then, then you hear this little Kenyan guy just like hauling. He's like, no, 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 no. He's just running. I'm like, what? What? Lion! And he's just letting us know. And, and, and I'm like, where? Please, I want to take a picture of this line. I want to see this line. Nowhere to be found. And then all of a sudden you just hear this roar. And I'm not going to even attempt to do this. No, it would be terrible. And, and I, think we got, I think we got the recording thing down right, and this will be eternal if I do it. So no, um, but it, it, it shakes you on the inside. Like, what, what kind of power is that? And this is why he makes this comparison. I joked about dogs being better than cats, but this is what he's doing. In their culture, he says, with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion, they know what a lion is. They know how regal and strong and powerful and scary a lion is. And dogs in their custom were not like man's best friend. Dogs were just really big rats, were what they were. Dogs were scavengers. And in most other countries, they still are. If you go to Haiti and you see a dog in the streets, you go, that's not a pet. That thing's got disease. Why is it eating a can? Um, that's, this, that's what they are. We're like feeding them this, it looks like hamburger meat that you buy in the freezer section at Target for our dogs now. That's not how they are in most of the world. They are just overgrown rats. First Kings 22 says that the dogs licked the king's blood as it spilled out of him. Second Kings 9 says that the dogs ate the queen's corpse when she died. This is what they were known for. And he said, it's better to be this like scavenger, low-life human that is alive than the most regal of people who is dead. He says there's hope in that. 
Why, why is there hope in that? Verse 5, for the living know that they will die. Okay, thanks for that. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. Okay. There is no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. It's like life is slightly better than death, I guess, even though it's still really, really meaningless. I mean, those that are alive have this hope because like, they're just they're alive. But, but it really, in the grand scheme of things, like what, what he's saying, he's like, Here, here's, here's the issue in the first six verses. Most people, and I don't blame them for this, most people don't think about death very often. It's just not the thing that, that is on our mind as we go about our day. We, we really kind of live as if we have an endless supply of days ahead of us, and we're kind of carefree, not super worried about what is to come. And Solomon really clearly calls this just foolishness. Not contemplating death causes you to be an unwise person according to him. On the other hand, um, some people are going to look at death and say these silly things like, live every day as if it's your last. And, and this is kind of the, the jump to conclusions direction that a lot of you will do after reading this. Like, okay, i gotta, I got to live as if this is, my, this is my last day. I mean, there's movies that are made about this and, and all of these things that kind of get us hyped up about living that way. And probably a lot of sermons are pointed that way that like, hey, what would happen if you died today? Um, like, we get that. Even our evangelism efforts wrap around this. But this is not what he's saying here. This is not what he's teaching us. Because if... if if I were to assume that today is my last day, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to go to work. Um, sorry, Jason, don't tell anybody that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to pay my bills. In fact, I'm probably going to ring up a pretty large amount of debt on a credit card um, doing something more than likely stupid. Uh, I'm probably not going to love people very well. If, if I had a, a test to study for, and you guys would say I'm into this, you're not studying for that. Um, you will straight up fail and tell your teacher about it because why you are out tomorrow. And there's a thousand other things that we would not do if we were considering this day to be our last. We, we don't live every day as if it were our last, but we live as if we know that we have a set number of days. Not assuming that today's my last but also understanding that I just have a set number of days that have been given to me by God. He's numbered them. And I need to make the most of the days that he has given me. But how do we do this? How do we go from like, death has basically rendered my life to be meaningless to go, okay, now that I see death, how can my life have meaning? This is the, the transition that he's trying to push us into, and they, they feel a little bit contradictory, but when we see this, we begin to, to understand this. He, he mentions this in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, in a different way, where it says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Since that's the end of all mankind, the living, the living should take this to heart. What's, what's he saying there? It's better for us to, to live in this way and understand that so much of life is meaningless. And so if we're in the house of mourning, at least we get a clearer picture of what's actually going on than going to the party together. And, and this is how this plays out. And we're going to read this a little bit more, but I want to put us in the right space. You think, or culture thinks, or a lot of your classmate thinks, 
that you need to go to the party and have a lot of fun so that you can know that you're truly alive. That's going to bring satisfaction to you and so that you know that you're really unbelievably alive. And what happens a lot of times at these spaces is that you make decisions that you regret. You wake up feeling worse. You, you, be, you long for it more because it doesn't really satisfy, and so you need to take it to the next level, and you need to push the limits, and you need to drink more, and you need to try more, and you need to flirt more, and you do all of those things because you think that the party is the thing that's going to bring about life, but it doesn't actually do that. You want to know the people who actually like live really, really well and who I see being motivated to, to live life to the fullest? It's people that are walking out of funerals. Think about it. If you've ever been to a funeral, you don't walk away and go, man, I can't wait to die. You don't have that thought. You walk away from the funeral and you have a couple thoughts. You go, man, I, I want to live life like that guy. Do you see the people that he impacted? Do you hear the stories that, that they told about him? Did you, like, I want to live life that way. Or you go, I, I, I don't want to live life that way. That was, that was sad. That was difficult. Walking away from a funeral, seeing the reality of death, actually pushes you into spaces of living. If, if we could contemplate the reality of death for all of us and understand that God has numbered our days and he gives us the ability to live them for his glory, then you would begin to enjoy life in a different way. Like we, we know what's coming. And it changes our approach to how we really do life. Facing death has this way of making you enjoy life. And so this is what Solomon says in these, in these verses. Verse 7. Go. Eat your bread with pleasure. He's like, hey, food good. Well, this, one of the reasons, hear me, that it's not easy. Setting up the table, setting up the chairs, cooking the food, you know, bribing college students to come cook the food, praying that the Lord doesn't bring about some disease as college students cook food for you that kills a big chunk of you. That, that was dark, sorry. Um, it costs money, it costs time and effort, but you want to know how, how much how it's worth it? One, God commands us to do it. Two, it's, it's beautiful to see you guys sit around a table and eat. Three, you really love food. A lot of our cool stories revolve around food and, and the joy that is found in food. God made food good. All right? We know that to be true. Like the garden, he's like, look at all these trees. Eat from all of them. And you're like, I don't really like fruit. I think I can prove biblically that when you get to heaven, there's going to be a tree that just like produces pulled pork. <laughs> it'll, be like, it'll be like a prime rib tree that you walk up to and be like, yep, and just go, go at it. There's probably going to be some fruit and some vegetable, and you're going to have to eat those too, but... Like the pig in a blanket tree is just going to be a cool place to hang out. The donut tree is going to be sweet. And you're, you're over there. Okay. You're like, wow. Food, good. Eat your bread with pleasure. Surround yourself with friends. Have fun. Enjoy that. That's what he's saying. And drink your wine with a cheerful heart. You're like, okay. <laughs> I got my wine in the car. Don't. Um, <laughs> don't, okay? That's what I'm saying. Now. I don't want to, to go into the, like, is it biblical or not to drink wine? Okay, if you're under 21, I'm going to go and say quit. Uh, but, but we can see in Scripture really, really quick. The Bible says drunkenness is a sin. Put that in your mind. The Bible says that you can drink in moderation. Put that in your mind. 
Read Romans 14 if you're struggling with it. Wrestle with that. All right? Because what, what Paul really says is that it, it shouldn't be such a big matter that it causes division in the church. You shouldn't, you shouldn't die on the hill of alcohol. If it offends your friends, then don't. But you have the liberty within Scripture to partake in it in a joyful way without abusing it. God created it to be good and for your pleasure. The other side of that is this is what they drank. That's what the Israelites had. They didn't have the smooth DC. Sorry, Zach, but that could be your modern day wine. It is your modern day wine. I know that to be true. This verse could say, eat your McDonald's and drink your DC with a cheerful heart. That's, that's, how, that's how you apply it. And he's, he's worshiping the Lord right now. This is what this verse says. This is what they drank and what they enjoyed. They weren't abusing it. It was the staple of every meal. That's why when we took communion this morning that we, we read about wine. And he goes, every time you do this, you think of me. And what his assumption was is that every time you sit down at this table, you're going to do this. Every meal that they had was wine and bread. And so every time they sat down, they could remember the gospel together. And this is what he's calling us to. Eat your bread with pleasure. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Verse 8, let your clothes be white all the time. You're like, Mormons? <laughs> Sorry. This is, this is the Middle East. It's the desert. It's hot. They wore white. It was the wise play. And also culturally, wearing white was also a season to celebrate. It was a reason to celebrate. They were getting ready for the party. And so what he's saying is like, hey, dress nice. Be ready for the festival. Enjoy yourself. And never let oil be lacking on your head. <laughs> How do I apply this in this modern time? Well, they're also in the Middle East. It was sunburn prevention. And the oil smelled pretty good. And so not only were they sweating, they were protecting themselves from the sun, they were also smelling better. Guys, this is, a, this is like a dating guide for you. <laughs> Fine food, good drink, having fun, dressing nice, smelling better. <laughs> Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife that you love all the days of your fleeting life. Anyone else got a wife? Nope. <laughs> I knew it was coming. Some of you are close. All right. Amen to that. Here's the deal. <laughs> um, and so it's happening. Enjoy life with the wife that you love. And you're like, well, I don't have a wife. How does this apply? This is your closest relationships. Lean into those relationships. Enjoy those relationships. Commit to those relationships. I am called, I am commanded in Scripture to love and pursue my wife even when I don't feel like it. I'm called in Scripture to call her beautiful and to speak words of truth over her even when I don't feel like it. And you're like, well, that, that kind of seems like, like you don't really mean it. Yeah, there's times that I don't mean it. I, I'm, that's, I'm just being transparent. There are moments when I just like, I don't feel like loving anybody today. What I feel like doing is like ripping some arms off. But instead, the Lord says that you are called to love and to continue to speak these words. Enjoy life with the wife that you love all the days of your life. For you guys, it's, it's find those friends and commit to that relationship and to love and to honor them well all the days of your life. And maybe one day you'll get a wife or a husband, which has been given to you under the sun all of your fleeting days, for this is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, 
do with all of your strength. What's he talking about? Your work. And more than just your work, your hobbies. The things that you engage in. like For movement. For exercise. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all of your strength because there is no work. There is no planning. There is no knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. And you're like, hell? No, Sheol is the grave. He's not talking heaven or hell here. He's still talking like death. And he says all of these things are not going to exist in death. And so you live your life this way. Enjoy a fine meal. Enjoy the drink with a cheerful heart with your friends. Dress nice. Celebrate those things. Smell better. Lean into your relationships. Work really, really hard. Reflect the gospel as you work in that. And why do we do these things? Why is Solomon at this point saying, hey, death is going to get you? And because death is going to get you, your life is meaningless. Like It doesn't matter what you do. We're all going to end up in the same space. And then he turns the corner and he goes, oh yeah, but your understanding of death can actually bring purpose to your life. And why is this? Because Solomon's wrestling here with this this really big gospel idea, and he has a relationship with God. I mean, God is the one that gave him wisdom and riches that will never be matched again. He he understands like who God is, and he's, he's struggling through some of these thoughts because he's not finding satisfaction in anything that God has given him. And now he's beginning to turn this corner to go, hey, if, if life is completely meaningless outside of the gifts that God has given us, which would be eating and drinking and relationships and work, then what am I supposed to do with these things? We skipped over a verse or a part of a verse in chapter or in verse 7. Go and eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, comma, for God has already accepted your works. For God has already accepted your works. What what does he mean by this? Like I love this. He's going God favors you enjoying the gifts that he's given you. He, he loves that you love these things. He loves that you're finding enjoyment in these things. You ha- we have to understand this, and I think the church has done a terrible job of this. It is not a sin to have fun. It is not a sin to enjoy the things that God has created. I think the church, or maybe like the weird American brand of Christianity, would, would say that life is a drag and that holiness is, is really, really boring. Um, it means that if you're going to be holy, you're not going to have any fun. It's actually found only in abstaining from fun. And the world looks at that and they go, I don't want to be a part of those things. Like if it, Christians believe that if it makes you feel good or if it makes you happy, then it's probably a sin and you got to get rid of it and stop doing it. And Solomon is like, no, here's the opposite of that. God wants you to enjoy life. He created food and he wants you to enjoy it. He created drink and he wants you to drink it with a cheerful heart. He created relationships and you should lean into them with all that you can. He created work and it should be something that you find enjoyment in and you do with 
all of your strength. And when you do this, when you begin to enjoy life in this way, then what happens is you begin to reflect the gospel in a really, really cool way. Because here's the, here's the idea. When we think about Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, we go, Jesus has delivered me from death. We've been talking about this on the podcast. He has delivered me from death and, and the, the consequences of sin in my life. And hear me, he did that. Like he took the wrath of God and he nailed it with himself on the cross. He took the punishment of your sin. He, he did do that. But, but there's something that that goes beyond him just like taking the sins of Adam that have cursed us and and nailing them to the tree so that we can have eternal life through Christ. That's 100% true. That is is the gospel. And when we think about the redemption that he gets us, a lot of times we just go this, what he has done for us is he has gotten us eternal life. But when you begin your relationship with God, when does eternity start? The correct answer is now. Now. It doesn't start when you die. And I made this statement to our Bible study leaders. A lot of us live this life on earth looking forward to heaven. And yes, Lord, like I'm so excited about that. I'm excited when the ocean is no more. I'm excited when we don't have to go to the beach. I'm excited for a lot of these things that heaven's going to bring about. Yes. But, but, but here's the deal. We think about heaven so much that you're just breathing to death. The breaths that you're taking have zero purpose. You're just breathing and waiting for the point that you die and get to heaven. All of those are good. But what God is calling you to is to breathe to life. Live a life that reflects a joy that you have found in a relationship with Christ. Because yes, he has rolled back the penalty of sin and death. The only way to get rid of the consequences of sin was for something to die. And Jesus, being the perfect sacrifice, died and took on the consequences of your sin so that you can be raised to new life. And that new life starts now. And I love that John 10.10. Anybody got it memorized? For he has come to give us life. Some say more abundantly. I think the NIV says life to the full. The start of that is that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But this is what Christ has done. He has come to give you life to the full. He has, he has created this so that you live your life to the fullest, eating and drinking and loving and working to the fullest. Now, the fall stole a lot of the joy in that. Sin steals the joy in that. And so instead of using God's gifts rightly, we um, abuse them. Instead of using them to express worship to God, they become sin issues. And so, so food becomes like gluttony to us, and drink becomes alcoholism to us, and relationships become lust and adultery and porn to us, and work either goes like laziness to you or workaholic to you. We've broken all of those things that God has created to be good. We've rebelled against God's original design, and the result, of course, is that we are broken. And and I love the beauty of this. What Jesus has redeemed us from is the consequences of sin, and it allows you to live and to enjoy the things that he's created, to have fun in the things that he's created. And when you do that, you reflect the gospel in a new way. And so when we think about missions, 
We think about what God has redeemed you from and what he's redeeming you to is that you get to live life to the full and put on display a joy in life that other people cannot experience or see and they begin to wonder. And so as you begin to find joy in eating and drinking with friends, I'm not saying like throw like a kegger at your house and blame the Bible for it. What I, what I am saying is that you can reflect the gospel in your response to these created things. When you love well. In your marriage, yes. Like, like I think the church has lost the power that, that a good, healthy, God-fearing, gospel-centered marriage can, the power that that can reflect to a lost world. Like we need to put so much more energy and effort into making sure that our, our marriages are really, really strong because he says that it reflects the gospel to people. Your work reflects the gospel to people. Your passion in that reflects the gospel to people. To people. This is how he has created us to function. Like it started in the garden. And all of the Old Testament is like this longing. This is what he's doing. He's longing to get back to the garden. And he's longing to get back to the garden. And this is how it was set up. God created all of this stuff, this garden, tons of land to just to go and play in, food everywhere. I know y'all get excited about that. A man and a woman, naked. And some of you are like, yeah, like th- this is a party. Like th- this is ideal for me. And we desire to get back to that point. And God created all of that for his glory and for our good. And sin has broken it. And what Solomon is going, you can rescue it. If you'll have the proper understanding of what Jesus did and you'll begin to apply it to your life, you can redeem the things of earth. And the world looks at that and they go, man, I I want that. I read this this tweet the other day. One of the questions they were going to ask me today was Facebook or Twitter. Um, it's Twitter for me, um, mainly because people can't talk too much on there. But I read this quote, when we, when we think about getting the practice of the kingdom right now, like living the right way now, enjoying life to the full right now, um, understanding what Christ's sacrifice has done for us, that his resurrection, of course, yes, triumphs over death, but it, it brings about new life in us. I read this tweet from, from Russell Moore. It said this, let us eat, drink, and be merry for yesterday we were dead, but today we're alive. We read scripture that's like, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But understand what the gospel got you. You can eat, drink, and be merry, and work, and have healthy relationships, because yesterday you were dead, and today you're alive. Let me pray for you.